Well, before Christopher comes to speak to us from uh, John 13, we're going to have a, a first reading is Leviticus chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect his mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he has desecrated what is holy to the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your Lord, of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse a deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Uh, the second uh, reading from today is from John. Uh, chapter 13, starting at verse 31. When he, was, when he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will, not, you will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. This is God's word. Let's uh, pray before we consider it together. Father, we thank you that in your great kindness you've spoken to us in Scripture. 
And we ask that as we listen now, you would open our hearts and minds and soften our wills, that we might respond with the obedience of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, how can you tell when God is present, if there is a God? What will be the evidence that he's here in a place or amongst a certain people? You know, if if, if somebody explodes a nuclear device, the scientists can find certain traces afterwards and they can say, this is the evidence that that, that, that that's happened. What would the evidence be that God is present? Perhaps it would be zeal, somebody might suggest, when people are eager and passionate about what they call God, perhaps even working themselves up into some kind of a frenzy. You might say, that, that, perhaps that is evidence of the presence of God. Or perhaps it's the presence of miracles, healings and exorcisms and so on, remarkable happenings. And you see those and you say, ah, now there is evidence of the presence of God. Or maybe it's convincing arguments. You come across a bunch of people who seem to have it all tied up. They seem to know all the answers. You can ask them any questions about God and life and stuff. And they seem to have all the answers. And you say, well, maybe that's evidence that God is with them. Or maybe it's vivid religious experiences, strong feelings, even perhaps dreams and visions. Or perhaps it's aesthetic, perhaps it's a beautiful building or or, or beautiful church music and a sense of reverence and awe, and you say that's uh, evidence of the presence of God. How do we discern the presence of God? And our passage is going to teach us a very remarkable truth that it's none of those things that there's one sure mark of the presence of God, and that is selfless, suffering, self-giving, supernatural love. Very simple truth that we're going to be looking at, but a very, very deep one. We're in the second half of John's Gospel. If you were here last week, you'll have seen that at the first part of chapter 30 of John's Gospel, Jesus is alone with the twelve apostles. He washes their feet, and uh, in verse 30, Judas Iscariot, the traitor, leaves and goes out into the night. And from then on, Jesus is just alone with the eleven, and we're almost in a kind of time of suspended animation on the night before the cross. The Lord Jesus opening his heart to, to his eleven true apostles. And it's a picture, really, of what the Lord Jesus says to to, 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 to his true church, what theologians sometimes call his, his invisible church, real Christian people. Any visible group like this will always be a mixture of, of genuine and non-genuine. That's always how it's going to be on earth. But what Jesus says from chapter 13, verse 31, right the way through to the end of chapter 16, uh, and then as he prays for them in chapter 17, he does in the presence of his real disciples. And it's a precious time. It is almost suspended animation. Nothing happens except the Lord Jesus opening his heart, interrupted by various questions from from the um, disciples. Now, we're just looking at this first little bit from 31 to 38 uh, today. And on the face of it, it seems quite bitty. And if you, you thought that as it was read. So Jesus says something confusing about glory at the beginning. Then he says the famous bit about um, a new commandment, that you love one another. And then there's a funny little conversation with Simon Peter. 
And so you think, you, you know, I, I thought I've got to preach this. What am I going to make of these funny little bits? So we're just going to give them a little rag bag of little bits. I tell you what I think holds it together. And you can tell me afterwards if you, if you think this is right. I think what holds it together is, is found right back in verse 1. If you glance back to verse 1 of chapter 13. where John says, second half of verse 1, having loved his own, that is his own disciples, his own followers, his own people who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love, or he loved them to the end. And I think what holds these uh, verses 31 to 38 together is the love that Jesus shows them that he's about to demonstrate to them in the cross the next day when he dies. So here's the first thing I want us to grasp, and it's very, very deep, um, but it's in some ways very simple, that God is revealed by the love of the cross. So this is the first couple of verses about glory. God is revealed uh, at the, by the love of the cross. Jesus begins, after Judas Iscariot has left, in the most extraordinary way. You'd expect him to say something like, well, now I'm going to die, it's going to be painful, sad, and horrible, but hold on to the memories. That's what you'd expect him to say. You know, I can see the way the wind's blowing, I can see that I'm going to be executed, but hold on to the memories. Every night in your dreams, you will see me, you'll feel me, that's how you'll know that I go on. Far across the distance and spaces between us, I will come to show you that I go on. With apologies to Titanic. I mean, it, it's it's... <laughs> It's very haunting in Titanic, isn't it? But I hope you don't think it's true. It's a load of nonsense. <laughs> hold on to the memories. Hold on to the memories. And the Lord Jesus doesn't say that at all. Let's look at what he says. Verse 31. Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man, Jesus' famous favorite um, title for himself, the human being, the defining human being. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God, that is God the Father, is glorified. In him, if God the Father is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, even if you can't disentangle all of that, you've got to have noticed that there's a lot of glory going on there. Jesus says we're on the cusp of glory time. Notice it's bracketed by the word now at the beginning and at once at the end. Jesus is talking about something that is about to happen. Now, now, glory. People often have fuzzy ideas about glory. It, it sounds sort of vaguely fuzzy and religious, doesn't it? Glory is not primarily something that we give God. Glory is primarily when the invisible God shows himself to us. So in the Old Testament, when, when the, the temple or the, the tabernacle where God symbolically dwelt uh, just every now and then there was a sort of cloud, a sort of cloudy, fiery appearance there. And they called that glory. That was the, 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 the almost tangible presence of God, the felt presence of God. So if you, a little illustration, imagine that, 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 um, it's a silly illustration. I don't know if this works or not, but imagine God symbolized by a, a, a dark house. And you're, you're going to pass this dark house at nighttime and you can't see it. God is invisible. The house is invisible. 
Many people think glory is when you and I take a floodlight or a searchlight and shine it at the house. And so we light up the house, we give God glory, and then we can see God. But glory is not primarily that. Glory is as if the house owner switches the lights on. And when the house owner switches the lights on, suddenly you can see. And glory is that. So what Jesus is talking about is when God the Father, who is invisible, becomes, as it were, visible, experienced, seen for who he is. When God the Son becomes glorified, visible, the lights are switched on. And it's quite a theme in in John's Gospel. Right at the beginning, don't turn to it, but but back in chapter 1, verse 14, uh, John says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And every now and then in John's Gospel, there are references to that. So when he turns water into wine in chapter 2, John says he, he showed his glory. He, as it were, switched some lights on and people began to see something of who he was and who he came to, what he came to do. But again and again in John's Gospel, you, you, get, you get little hints that actually the real glory hasn't yet happened. So in chapter 7, that uh, John says that Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the water into wine wasn't the real, it was, it was a kind of perhaps turning the kitchen light on, but not turning all the lights on. And uh, when in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to Martha, Lazarus's sister, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And you think, isn't that marvelous when this man who's been dead four days comes out of the tomb? And you think, this is the glory of God. And you think, well, this is it. And then after that, in chapter 12, you get a couple of times where John says, um, Jesus says, now is the time to be glorified. So it wasn't raising Lazarus from the dead. And if you look carefully at chapter 12 later, you'll see that when Jesus says glory time, he's talking about something that fills his heart with dread. He says, this is something I'm troubled about. This is something terrible and yet glorious at the same time. And it becomes apparent that Jesus is talking about the cross. And you can imagine the disciples saying to Jesus, glory time. Now, now is God glorified, verse 31 and 32. God is glorified in Jesus. God is glorified. God will glorify the Son in himself. I'll glorify him at once and so on. You can imagine the disciples saying to Jesus, that sounds marvelous. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen at once? Sounds wonderful. Sounds beautiful. And you can imagine Jesus saying to them, I'm going to be that the most horrible, ugly, and unjust action in human history is going to happen tomorrow. I'm going to be unjustly tried. I'm going to be stripped and mercilessly beaten. I'm going to be nailed up to a Roman cross, and I'm going to die in excruciating agony and shame. And that's glory. And when you see that, you will see God the Father revealed as never before. You will see God the Son revealed as never before. You'll see God more clearly than you ever see God in the beauty and the wonder and the intricacy of nature. Do you see something of God in that? You see God more clearly than you you do in you and I as human beings. We are God-like creatures. There's something of the image of God in us. But you'll see God on the cross, at at the cross, revealed more clearly even than in the miracles of Jesus. How so? How so? How is that the case? Well, for the Son, 
when we see the cross of Jesus, we see the loving obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Son to the Father, doing the Father's will right to the very end, right to those depths of shame and agony and misery and disgrace. And we see his loving obedience of the Father right to the end. We see his compassion for those he loves. We see that as he dies for sinners. And we see the full extent of his love as he dies. And we see that on the cross. And we see the love of the Father on the cross as he gives his only Son. We see the love of the Father on the cross as he as he gives his Son to die to work out the the plan of rescue, the only way in which sinful men and women could ever be rescued. And there is something very, very, very wonderful about the cross. John Calvin, in the 16th century, said that in the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God the Father is like, if you want to know what God the Son is like, look at the cross. Look at the most ugly, unjust, hideous action in all of human history and you will see the love and the character of God revealed. Now incidentally, as one old writer pointed out, the fact that Jesus supremely was glorified at the cross shows to us that there is nothing you and I can experience by way of suffering that uh, will not make us shine more brightly if we go through it trusting in God. The cross made Jesus shine brightly because he went to it trusting in his Father. And you and I, there's nothing we can be called to go through, whatever pain and suffering and sadness you and I may be called to go through, and you and I will shine brighter if we go through it trusting in God, and that's a wonderful thing. God is revealed with the love at the love of the cross. Now that means that the cross must be at the center of Christian churches. It's so good that here we sing about the cross again and again and again. You couldn't come to, 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 to this church gathering and go away not knowing that we think that the cross of Jesus is really, really vital and wonderful. You couldn't. I remember Carolyn and I once went to something that called itself a Christian church, and at the end we wondered if Jesus had ever died or if the cross had ever happened. There'd been no mention of it in song, in words, in reading, in anything. And we went away wondering if it was a Christian church. But you couldn't think that here. It's good, isn't it, that we sing about the cross. It's good that we speak about the cross. It's good that we glory in the cross. It's good that we say that's where God is revealed and that's where Jesus is revealed. And therefore, and this is the second thing, verses 33 to 35, if God is revealed by the love of the cross, Christians are revealed by the love of the cross. Jesus speaks very affectionately, verse 33, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You're going to look for me. And just as I told the Jews, and by the Jews, that's not anti-Semitic. He means they're the unbelieving hostile Jews back in chapter 7 and 8, just as I said to them, where I'm going, you can't come. And he'd said to the unbelieving Jews, if you stay unbelieving, it's not just that you can't come, but you're never going to be able to come. You're going to die in your sins. 
But he says to his friends, his disciples, he says, you're not going to be able to go where I go tomorrow. You're not going to be able to do what I do. I'm going to do something for you that you cannot do for yourselves. And so I give you a new command, verse 34, love one another. We had that reading from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. So there's nothing new about the command to love people. That's fundamental to the whole of the Bible. But what is new, I take it, is the words, as I have loved you. As I have loved you, the un, the, the selfless, suffering, sacrificial, self-giving love of the Lord Jesus on the cross as he loved his own to the end. The Lord Jesus says, as you begin to show glimpses of that kind of love, and there'll never be more than glimpses, but as you begin to do that, so people will see that's the hallmark that God is present. They won't see that God is present if we get very excited. They'll just think there's a bunch of people getting very excited. They won't think God is present if we're very clever. They'll just think there's a bunch of people who are very clever. They won't think God is present just because we might live, have, meet in a beautiful building or sing beautiful songs or whatever. They'll just think it's a beautiful building and beautiful songs. But when they see in human relationships and the messiness of real human relationships, when they see glimpses, not just of the kind of kindness and niceness that God in his goodness gives to all sorts of people. I mean, all kinds of people, Christian and non-Christian, can, can be kind and nice and, and, and good to us in some ways and loving in some ways and that there's love in non-Christian families and so on. Of course there is. But when they begin to see something that is supernatural and that is a suffering, self-giving love, then they will, they will begin to see this is the mark of being a disciple of Jesus. Of course, you need a mark. Well, Jesus was present on earth. It was pretty obvious who was disciples of Jesus. There was Jesus, and they were tagging along behind. They could be bickering and ungodly and selfish and ambitious and all sorts of horrible things, but they were obviously disciples of Jesus because they were tagging along behind him. But when Jesus isn't there, you look at a bunch of people and they say they're disciples of Jesus, and you say, well, I don't know how to tell. And Jesus says, I'll tell you how to tell. When their hearts have been so filled with what I have done for them, with the love that I've shown them at the cross, that they begin to show glimpses of that love to one another, then you'll know that they're my disciples. That's the mark of the church. Incidentally, sometimes people say this business of Christians loving one another sounds a bit introspective. Sounds like the ethics of the ghetto. We just love one another, but we don't love anybody else. Um, that would be a complete misunderstanding. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that loving everybody in general can be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, love the people who are in your family, the, the, the people who are your fellow Christians. And, and as you love them with sacrificial love, that will be a love that overflows to the world outside. And many of us, if we tell our Christian stories, there'll be stories of how we, we came to see a love in a Christian fellowship and began to experience it for ourselves. It began to overflow to us. And we began to ask what it was that, that had caused that. We had a lovely um, 
time of prayer with our, I run a Bible training course and, and uh, one of our students from overseas, from Rwanda, was telling us, he's been with us for the last year, he's called Determine, some of you may have heard him here, I think he's been interviewed here, and uh, he said he was at university in Rwanda, I think it was a couple of years before the genocide, and he said he went to university, he wasn't a Christian, and he went round, I think he said he went round just about all the student societies, and he found that all the student societies were divided on ethnic lines, Hutu and Tutsi, I guess, mainly. All of them, except one, which was the Christian Fellowship. And as he saw the Christian Fellowship, which had men and women from Hutu and Tutsi, from different ethnic groups there, he thought to himself, there must be something in this. And that led to his, 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 his coming to faith in Christ. Now, if you know the history of the genocide, you'll know that the Christian church was far from perfect. So we're not talking about the Christian church is showing this perfectly. But we're saying there are glimpses there. I often tell the story, of, I may have told it here, because I tell it very often, of, a, of a, one of our students from one of the Central um, Asian, uh, former student, one of the Central Asian republics, one of those places ending in Stan, kind of dodgy place to live. And he was brought up there, brought up as a Muslim, very zealous Muslim. And I remember him telling me at interview, he said, I was, a, I was a zealous Muslim. He was 17. He was a big, tough farmer. And uh, his sister had become a Christian. And she, she said, you must come to church. You must come to church. And finally, he went to church with her. And he, he said to me, he said, I went very suspicious of this church. But when I went to this church, she said, I had never seen such love. And it melted my heart. A very moving moment. I was supposed to be interviewing him to see if I give him a place on the course. I was tearing up, really. I mean, there was this big, strong, you know, he wasn't a kind of poet, you know, the kind of person you'd expect to say soppy things like that. You know, he's a big, strong guy, and he said, he said, I'd never seen such love. I'd never seen it in the mosque. I'd never seen it in my family. And it melted my heart. And you and I need to be encouraged if we're Christian people, because if we're Christian people, we're very aware of all the stuff that's wrong in our relationships. Isn't that right? We see the stuff in church life that isn't right, the niggles, the hassles, the, you know, the stuff that goes wrong. What we don't realize is that when somebody comes into a real Christian fellowship, they find something amongst us, imperfect though it is, that they do not find in the office. They find uh, a quality of love that is new. That was certainly my story when I first came to Christ. So God is revealed by the love of the cross. And you and I need to think about how that works out in London. Isn't London a strange place like other big cities? It's a place of proximity without intimacy, as someone has said. You live close, bunched up with lots of people, but without any... You know, one of our African students was saying, it was so odd when he came here last September. You go on the train and nobody looks at you, let alone talks to you. He said to our students, his students, he said, the first time I saw you guys smile, I came in September, the first time I saw you smile was at the Christmas party. I mean, London can be a miserable place, can't it? Miserable, lonely place. And a Christian fellowship ought to be a place where people find in the love of Christ, expressed in the love of Christians, they find that they've been drawn into that that love. And we need to think about how to Encourage one another to do that because it's not easy. I don't know about you, I find that building friendships in London, because we're so busy, 
And we're so pressured. It's really hard. It takes time, doesn't it, to do that? And maybe you guys just make friendships very quickly and easily. Uh, those are students, it's easier, because you don't do any work. But, um, um, <laughs> but, but, but the rest of us, it, it, just take, it does take time. But it's very important, because Jesus says, that's how people are going to know that you're disciples of Jesus. Now, finally and briefly, verses 36 to 38. If God is revealed by the love of the cross, if Christians are revealed by the love of the cross, I think we see at the end here that spiritual heroes are humbled by the love of the cross. Spiritual heroes humbled by the love of the cross. So Simon Peter it doesn't seem to pay any attention to the new commandment in verse 36. He just says, where are you going? I'm worried that you're going. Wish you weren't going. And Jesus says, uh, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. You will suffer. You will die for me later. And you will follow me to my father's house. We'll be thinking about that next week. But Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'm going to lay down my life for you. Peter is, Peter is a great guy. Peter is the best. He's the best they've got. And he says, I'll lay down my life. He means it. He loves Jesus passionately from the heart. It's not a, a false love. He's not a Judas Iscariot. He's a genuine guy. He loves Jesus. I'll, I'll lay down my life for you. But Peter needs to learn that he doesn't so love as, he, as that he is loved. A friend of mine was um, being interviewed for a place at a theological college. He was training for Church of England ministry. This was some years ago. And the interviewer said to him, really good question, he said to him, um, uh, do you love God? A slightly alarming question, isn't it? Have you ever been asked that interview? Do you love God? I love his answer. He paused and then he said, um, I don't know, but I know that he loves me. That's a very Christian answer, that, isn't it? That's what Peter needed to learn. He said to Peter, do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you need to understand that it's not you laying down your life for me, it is me laying down my life for you. You need to understand that the dynamic that's going to energize your Christian life, the thing that's going to make your discipleship tick, is that I lay down my life for you. You need to understand that. And for all Peter's warmth and genuineness and attractiveness, really, as a character. He needs to understand that the, the, the spiritual hero mentality that says, I'm going to do great stuff for Jesus, needs to be humbled by the love of the cross. So that our song is not, I'm going to do great things for Jesus, we're going to do great things for Jesus, good on us. Our song is, Jesus has laid down his life for us. That will be our song in all eternity. And our, our spiritual instincts of heroism are humbled by the love of the cross. So how will we know when God is present? We will know when the message of the cross, of the selfless, suffering, supernatural, self-giving love of the Lord Jesus is placarded before us, before men and women. We know when the message of the cross is at the heart of our preaching, our praying, our singing. 
And we'll know when that love begins to be, to, to be seen. Little glimpses of it, imperfect as we are. Mixed motives as we have, self-centered as we are. But little glimpses of the selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus beginning to be seen amongst us. That is a wonderful, supernatural thing. And when men and women see that, they should draw the conclusion, that's a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that there in the agony and shame we see your love placarded before us. We see the love of the Lord Jesus placarded before us. And we ask that our hearts might be so filled and so changed and so shaped by that love that we in our turn would begin to show that kind of love to others. We ask it for Jesus' glory. Amen.